Greetings once again, my friends, and welcome back to Why We Geek, the podcast where we take a piece of geek culture, uh, whether it be big or small, whether it be a genre, whether it be a small little video game or one-time entry, and we show why we love it. And uh, first of all, I'm your host, Adam Mickelson. Welcome to the podcast, this 10th one. We're almost to the end of the year. And today we actually have a very appropriate subject because we are literally doing this about two days before All Hallows' Eve. And so I wanted to try and stick to something a little bit more horror-oriented. And I figured, you know what? We need just a basic intro. We need a basic intro to horror, the genre itself. And who better to give this intro than the master of Monster Clash himself? And I'd like to welcome Stephen Romney to the panel of Studio Ghost from the Shelf. Romney's reviews, obviously Monster Clash and Rhapsody in Cinema. Romney, how you doing tonight? Oh, doing pretty good. I was working on kind of the epilogue to this year's run of Monster Clash. I wasn't able to get through as many videos, but this epilogue will kind of shed some light as to why the videos take so long to make. But that's uh, that's yeah. kind of a long, long topic that is going to be in another video or audio thing if you're the kind of person that likes to listen to videos in the background while working. Yeah, funniest thing, like a lot of people don't realize that production is a lot bigger than you actually think it is. I mean, you guys, for the most part, I'm not criticizing people, but when when criticisms like that are made, you don't get that it's the end product you're looking at. And of course, that looks really small. You just don't realize that maybe a 30 minute video took about a month to make. And I, I'm I'm guessing Monster Class Monster Clash is no exception because. Even with big themes, um, I've, I've seen a, a lot of upload dates where you aren't even contained to October uh, to be able to make that work. Yep, and, that, and it's very much is, it takes a lot of time, especially considering that I'm a one-man operation. It's, I'm cast, I'm crew, I'm running the camera, running the microphones, putting on makeup. It's it's a process. Yeah, and, even, and, and another example that people might want to look into is uh, James Rolfe, when he does his uh, Monster Madness, uh, yeah, he's got a crew of three. So so Romney's got a crew of one, he's got a crew of three, and he has to start development on these things in August just to make sure that he can do a video. I think, I think most of the time, unless it's a big subject, he's planning a video every other day, or like in the case of Godzilla or the Hammer Horror films, he's planning a video every day. And they can be small, but it's still, like, that's production that has to go into things. Yep, because you want to churn out a quality product. But listeners aren't here to listen to the minutiae yes. of, of the making of videos. That's a probably yeah. a separate topic for a separate episode. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because, well, we're, we're now talking about probably one of the most involved genres of film, of games, of TV. And that's why I'm saying that this is horror in general, because... The genre itself is something that can legitimately cover be covered, and I guess the first place to start is always how we start with these podcasts. Uh, Romney, what was the first time that you were actually subjected, like you actually saw horror in any form, and therefore decided, I need to do things like Monster Clash for people, and probably even like what was the best horror-based anything that you've ever actually come across? Well, it's actually kind of interesting, because a lot of people may think that I was one of those kids that grew up watching monster movies, but actually, I was a bit of a wimp as a kid. Like, a lot, I didn't really like a lot of scary stuff. I mean, I remember getting, like, the earliest time a film gave me nightmares 
was watching Injun Joe in Tom and Huck. That was the first movie character that legitimately gave me nightmares, where I was afraid he would come into my house and stab me. Oh, are you talking the the Jonathan Taylor Thomas yeah, movie? Yeah, that one. Okay, all right. And so that was the earliest example of something scaring me, but I also did watch series like Goosebumps and The Nightmare Room and a lot of those things, but I didn't really get into horror as a genre until high school, because by then, and it kind of goes into oh, one of the major reasons why some people tend to get into these things in high school, your body is changing, your brain is changing, so many changes going on that nobody is really willing to explain to you or make sense of. So naturally, you basically become your own worst enemy. Yeah, pretty much. And and I gotta say, like, my origin is kind of similar. Like, I, I have been kind of a chronic wimp most of my life. Um, it's not that I don't enjoy horror, because I'm, I'm kind of in your situation. I do enjoy it. Is it my favorite genre? No, but when it, when put with the right formula, it actually really does work out. And kind of like you, I didn't see Goosebumps, but um, I'd like to think Are You Afraid of the Dark counts, because to me, when I, I've, I've seen Goosebumps episodes recently, uh, before the, the Jack Black movie came out, and I, I kind of went there and said, I kind of looked at it and went, oh, okay, so this is basically like trying to be Are You Afraid of the Dark, but with a book series. All right, I, I can get behind this. Well, yeah, and then there were some episodes I did actively, because a lot of people may think, oh, yeah, did you read the books? I wasn't really a reader. I would, I was someone who liked the visuals, so I would check out episodes from the library. I remember watching the VHS tape of Welcome to Dead House and a couple of the others, like the Halloween mask one, and, and of course, the Night of the Living Dummy episodes were always pretty eerie. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've seen the Night of the Living Dummy ones, but um, the one that people always tell me to watch and I've never been able to find uh, any videos online for is The Haunted Mask, which is apparently the debut. And apparently, I, I didn't even realize it, it's like a big series in the TV series and in the in the books. And I've never been able to find any of the episodes. Yeah, and out of all of them, I'd have to say my favorite would probably have to be, like, I, I know it's not called Tower of Terror, it's like, it's Night and Something Tower, mainly just because I really liked the twist at the end. And so, when it came to me actually getting invested into horror... It was around high school. Now, to kind of give context, this was when the Twilight novels were in vogue. And yes. I, it was around the same time that I had also discovered the Castlevania series. And so my gateway was through vampire fiction and basically trying to find things involving vampires that weren't softcore porn meant for teenagers or weren't basically, you know, pointless fantasy schlock, for lack of a better term. And it did lead to some other stories. And... It's kind of an interesting thing where I kind of had a love-hate relationship with certain aspects of horror cinema, mostly because a lot of the people in my high school, let's just say, people love making monster movies. People love doing zombie films because they get to put out the makeup and they get to basically do a bunch of crazy stuff, but you can tell when they're not actually taking the time to think of what makes it work. I mean, when Shaun of the Dead was in theaters, everybody wanted to make a zombie, sh a comedic zombie short film. So much so that when we were actually planning on doing a serious zombie short film, it basically got hijacked because they wanted to copy Shaun of the Dead. And then there was the disastrous werewolf movie that I got tricked into starring in, which thankfully they have not uploaded to YouTube. And I hope it stays that way because it is utter crap because the director had no idea what the hell he was doing. 
And so it's kind of those things that I enjoyed, but I very much, I didn't get into it. Like I wasn't immediately swept up and it slowly drew me in as I started watching more movies and kind of starting to look beyond just the monsters, beyond just the gore, beyond just the jump scares, and actually looking at the subtext of a lot of these stories. Yeah, that that's actually kind of my my deal with it, because unfortunately, this is one of those times where I can't necessarily say I have a one-time favorite that just describes the genre in a nutshell for me, because again, unlike Romney, who's kind of gotten over that whole thing, I still have bouts of paranoia when watching the right thing. And uh, thankfully, people know to to basically push me in the other direction so that I can, uh, you know, sleep at the end of the day. <clears throat> but if I were to actually say, like, one particular point in it, um, anything, in, this sounds very generalized, but pretty much anything involving, like, a giant monster or... Uh, something, some kind of a, a monster of any kind. I really do appreciate Hammer Horror. I really do appreciate the old school Godzilla movies. Um, those are are kind of the horror that I tend to flock to. Um, I can tell you already, like a lot of the people that are hoping that I've seen this, that, and the other, probably not because horror was outlawed in my family. Like, but I I can't even. I I've told this story on the podcast before, but um, one night or. Uh, one Halloween when me and my wife had just barely gotten married, she decided to turn on uh, ABC Family at the time because now it's freeform and Poltergeist was on. Now, Poltergeist is one of those few movies that I knew my dad had seen in the theater along with my older brother, and it was outlawed because they would literally destroy tapes. If, if it so much as snuck its way into the house, they were done with that the second they saw it. And I'm just like sitting there going, is that Poltergeist? She's like, yeah. Like, Dude, I really hope my dad doesn't come down here. We're going to be dead. And all of a sudden, who comes knocking on the door but my dad? And he's like, uh, did you remember to go and get that one thing for the store? I'm like, uh, yeah, I did. And he like looks over the TV, I swear, 10 times during this entire uh, exchange. And this is a guy who knows that movie inside and out because it's trauma for him. And he's like, hmm, hmm, hmm. Hmm? And he walks out. He doesn't even punish my wife who's watching his most dreaded film. He doesn't even punish her. But at that point, I'm just like sitting there going, what the hell? Because I knew that um, Poltergeist was was banned in my house. Exorcist, the original Exorcist was banned. The original Alien was banned. Um, so much so that I remember a friend giving me a DVD and my dad told me, you have two days to get this out of the house. Kind of thing. So... That that's kind of a very elongated version of like my my favorite points in the genre because I'm I'm still a horror fan but can I say it's like my absolute favorite genre? Not really, but it has such a great staple in film and and in TV. Yep. And for, but the next yeah, and for go, me go the other thing is that although I wasn't really into horror, I was I always had kind of an interest in supernatural fiction. So usually things that talked about vampires, ghosts, and werewolves, just not usually in a horror context. I mean, one of my favorite anime from childhood would be Shaman King, and so that was kind of a good gateway to supernatural stories. I mean, yeah, it's a Shonen Jump series, and pretty much, if you've read one Shonen Jump manga, you've pretty much read them all, but it was a good introduction to, the to like, supernatural action, and so that was something that had me peaked that slowly evolved in, uh, and led me to going into looking at horror as a genre. 
exactly. So this is another uh, subject where, unfortunately, like I could come up with questions for this, but I actually reached out to you guys, uh, mainly because I know that horror is always one of those things that people get confused about when talking about it. And so since we had the master of Monster Clash here and we are doing a Why We Geek and showing why we love it, um, we're actually going to take these first two questions uh, right off the bat. And the first one is, how would you characterize a horror, like, let's just say for the sake of argument, a horror film, what elements have to be there to constitute it being a horror? And we'll just kind of work this out so that we can set the scene here, because a lot of people just look at it and go, oh, well, it has to have a vampire. No, not really. Not really. Um, all it has to do is have some kind of a threat, whether it be a monster, whether it be a serial killer, whether it be just a murderer in general. Yeah. Um, it just has to have a threat. It doesn't even even need to be human either. It could. The best the best way to answer this is to look at the different types of conflicts in a story. So you have man versus man. So this is main character against another person. Then you have man versus nature. So a main character struggling against a force of nature beyond their control. Then you also have man versus, well, like versus the world. So it could be a case where it's the protagonist is at odds with the rest of the world. It could be through, like, it could be a legal drama where they're uh, they're fighting a losing battle. Or it could be a, zo a zombie apocalypse film where, okay, the world has gone to crap and you're trying to survive. And then there are other variations thereof where you have, like, basically man versus like unnatural forces or divine forces. And that's really what it comes down to that any threat can, can work in a horror film if presented in the right context. And so there isn't really a case of, Oh, what does something need to have to be a horror film? I think it comes more to intent as in what is the story trying to show and explore about the human condition. And that's kind of really what it comes down to. So what makes it a horror film really boils down to what is the intention of the story is the intention to scare your audience. And that's, and it's with any story, whether it's a book, a movie, a video game, that's kind of the first key thing is, is the intention of the, of what you're showing to elicit fear, to elicit a sense of terror or horror. Exactly. So at that point, when we have that established, then your camera angles, your story, your characters all kind of come into play to be able to fit what you're trying to do. Because, you know, we've said it numerous times on the podcast, and we'll say it here, that when it comes to horror, atmosphere is king. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not setting the proper atmosphere, then it doesn't matter if you have a really scary villain, uh, because people are going to laugh it off. Yeah, and alternately, you run into the other problem of if you have a very scary sequence, but you haven't established that the film is going to be that kind of film, you have you basically suffer from tonal whiplash, where you could have... A good example is the film Super, which you, you look at it and it's like, okay, it's basically meant to be a knockoff of Kick-Ass, and then the whole second half just turns into absolute nightmare fuel with no real reason. It just suddenly goes from okay, yeah, this, this is funny and silly, and look at how absolutely horrifying this actually is. And you have that tonal whiplash because the film didn't set out to create that context, whereas Kick-Ass the movie did, where it did go out to explain, hey, here's how hard it would actually be to be a superhero in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, just to give kind of a, a, like you gave the example of Super, I'm going to go in the classical sense, but, you know, when you're trying to set up a story that fears people, creating a scientist who decides to find the 
more primal sources of of our instincts of our of our evolution then makes a potion to then bring that out of him and therefore he's no longer the civilized man that we've all come to know in average everyday society he is the threat in that particular case of Mr. Hyde. Yep. And so and that is- all you have to do is is create the circumstances with which fear can be roused out of the viewer, out of the reader. Yeah, and that raises the other thing, because Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a good example of a man versus self-conflict, where the main character is confronting an aspect of themselves, because the goal of him making the potion is not so that he can unleash it. He's basically trying to separate that primal aspect of himself separate from... He's basically trying to cut Edward Hyde out of himself so that he can be prim, proper Dr. Jekyll. And the story is itself a meditation on how that is impossible because it is still a part of him. And by trying to divest yourself from it, you only make it stronger. Yep. Um, and so at that point, that, that actually kind of leaks into the next question that we have, because now that we've established kind of what it takes to be a horror, um, the next thing that we actually have to ask is what tropes are absolutely necessary to be able to set that scene. And, you know, the, the reason that this actually got asked was in particular, do you need to have the dumb tropes of black guy dies first? Do you have to have the dumb tropes of, um, you know, uh, the, the group splitting up so that they can be killed off one by one kind of thing? And, and here's the thing. I don't necessarily think you need them. They just kind of help that formula. Um, because here's the thing. People dying, well, I'm not saying black guy dies first needs to happen there, but um, people dying is what sets that up because that brings up sense of mortality for people. Yep, and another thing to consider is that a lot of people bring up those tropes because they're tropes that a lot of filmmakers have used without really thinking through why you need to use them because that raises the other question, the other purpose of a horror story, because the first purpose is to elicit fear, And then the second purpose, which is, I feel, more important than the first is, what is it that you're trying to explore? What aspect of the human condition are you wanting to analyze and call attention to? So, to bring a good example of a good slasher film that does this is, okay, what if you went to bed and died in your dream? Does that mean you die in real life? And thus, you have Nightmare on Elm Street, which creates the, which is very much a meditation on that concept where, you have people who constantly wonder, okay, what happens if you die in your dream? Because there's always that interesting phenomena of you never see what happens when you're dying in your dream because you usually wake up. And so it to kind of piggyback on that, having someone killed in the story establishes that sense of mortality because you need to establish, oh, this person dreamed that they were being chased by Freddy Krueger. What happened? Like, And then they got killed. You need to show that, hey, they died in real life because they died in the dream. And so a lot of the tropes people see and think, oh, does it need this or that, really comes down to what you're exploring. Because another thing to look at is, okay, look at something like, off the top of my head, Dracula. Because with Dracula, as and I'm talking the original novel, you have it where, okay, you've got the like this vampire who's tri- first tricked Jonathan Harker and set up passage to England, and now he's terrorizing England, doing this, that, and the other. And all the thing, oh, do vampires have to ha- do this and that? And it's a case of, okay, well, think of the underlying context of what is exploring. You basically have this foreign, otherworldly force that has no restrictions or restraint, 
terrorizing the civilized, prim, and proper world. It's literally a demon from the old legends terrorizing modern society. Yep, and then to add on to the vampire trope, it's not that just... Because here's the thing. Um, a lot of movies, especially today, like to do the the horror trope of nobody wins. Well, well, the bad guy wins, roughly. So, like, I would dare say, um, I've never seen a single Saw movie, but the way that, that Saw has always been portrayed out to me is, like, the psycho wins every single time because he makes um, all of his subjects uh, do what he ultimately tells them to do. So he wins in the end. Um, but in the case of Dracula, you know, you have this otherworldly force that you can't necessarily do anything about, but then little... Uh, chinks in the armor, so to speak, start showing up. Then we have the, uh, I was about to say immunity to sunlight, but no, you have the weakness of sunlight. Then you have the weakness of holy water. He can't enter churches. He can't, you can't, he can't go into your home unless you invite him. And then at that point we actually have, okay, you have these tiny little things to protect you, but you're still dealing with this big abominable force that you have to overcome. And through sheer force of luck in a lot of those cases, you overcome it. Yep. But and you're never the same again. Yes. And then there's ways where you have people who they themselves create the horror. Most famously, you have Frankenstein, where you have Dr. Frankenstein, a doctor trying to basically crack the riddle of, is it possible to bring someone back to life? And thus he gathers the parts of different body parts, puts it all together, decides to blend both mysticism and science to create the monster. Cause that's something that's always left ambiguous in the original novel. In, and it's heavily implied that he's blending both magic and science to accomplish this, whereas most people think of the universal version where it's strictly science. But that also speaks to the issues of the day that you're commenting on. And so that kind of is the key thing of there's no real tropes that are necessary. And tropes aren't inherently bad, but you need the to take the time to understand what is it you're trying to explore. What is it that you're wanting the to leave with the audience? What is it that you're wanting them to think about as they're going through your story. And it's actually a good thing that I got those questions out of the way because my, uh, you guys won't see this on camera, but my daughter walked in and she now has my phone. So that's where all the questions were. So that thankfully though, um, we can actually go from here, but I wanted to be able to set this scene for people. So people know exactly what we're actually tackling with this horror episode. And so the next thing that I want to go into is horror. Since we're talking horror in general, Horror has tons of genres within it. Um, we, you know, you have the slasher flicks and the zombie flicks that that are now kind of more prevalent in everyday film. Uh, but then you also have the what I like to call fantasy horror, where it's dealing with vampires, it's dealing with the Wolfman, it's dealing with the creature of the Black Lagoon, where it's a more fantasy-based threat, but it still feels otherworldly and therefore is still a problem you have to you have to take take advantage of. You also do have the psychological horrors um, that can in turn be more of a a mind F than it actually is like a legitimate physical threat. It's just it's trying to shatter your mind. So at that point, the next question is of these various genres, which one do you actually find the most enjoyable, like the most enjoyable of what you get out of horror, Romney? Well, at least given the films I've recently looked at for Monster Clash, both this year and last year, I do tend to be drawn more to supernatural horror, but not in the sense of vampires, werewolves, but ones that tend to deal more with ghosts, with hauntings, especially, and the really good ones that I enjoy are the ones that don't try to explain everything, because that is a common mistake. 
Because that, it defeats the point. The reason hauntings and ghosts are scary is because we don't know what is actually happening. It could be our own mind. It could be ghosts. We don't know. And you never know. And that is what is terrifying. One of my favorite, absolute favorite horror films of all time would be the original version of The Haunting from the 60s because that is literally a meditation on that concept of, okay, did this main character go crazy because of the ghosts or was she always crazy and just devolved further into her own psychosis? It never gives a clear answer. It leaves it ambiguous. And that is what makes it inherently much more terrifying than the really awful remake that completely missed the point. See, in that point, I'm glad you brought that up where you have that tiny little piece of logic that doesn't that still doesn't make sense in that whole element. <clears throat> the the most common element I can say, like in a horror film where that comes up is like where they're trying to explain everything and saying, oh, this is how everything works. And then all of a sudden it's like, uh, you know, come on out, Mike, who you, we know you shut the door. I'm right here. And then you look over to the other side of the room kind of thing. And then it's like, oh, wait, maybe this isn't all entirely explained. Um, for me, my favorite genre, I, I would have to actually say it's like it's supernatural horror. I, I, I know a lot of people will probably be disappointed by that because I know there are slasher fans out there. I know that there are major fans of psychological or thrillers um, like, say, the uh, I, I, I haven't seen a lot of these, but uh, like Korean and Japanese horrors apparently go a lot more into the psychological aspect of it in particular um the one that i don't know if it's actually we adapted it but the one that the grudge is based off of so yeah so at that point it's like it's more of a psychological thriller i tend to more like the the fantasy or the supernatural horror because i do actually like having those otherworldly forces in in play um i'll admit that also a lot of my favorite horror films are also just kind of schlocky B film kind of things. So I find them enjoyable for the scary aspect, but also for the humor uh, because of the bad acting, because it's the fifties or the sixties and they don't really know how, what, what else to do with it. And you know, like not even just bound to vampires. I also, a lot of people don't even consider it that anymore because it's its own genre, but the original Godzilla film, that's a pretty scary film. When you look at it in the concept of like a natural disaster, um, so that's actually one of my favorite films of all time is the original 1950s Godzilla. Yep. And Japan, it's kind of the same case where they go, they do a lot of the same explorations and that's just because they have a great deal. They have a very large wellspring of various ghost stories that can be pulled from because, well, ghosts, the various demons and ghosts are part of that same exploration of the human condition. I mean, there's the classic example of the of the woman with scars on her face, where it's kind of the idea is that you see this woman that she has her face covered. And then she asks if you think she's pretty, if you say yes, and she reveals the scars, she then asks if you think she's pretty. And if you say yes, she cuts your face to be exactly like her. So that way you can be pretty too. And if you say no, she well kills you because well, you called her ugly. And so it's stuff like that. And ultimately what a story like that is exploring is the concept of vanity. When you really look at it. Yep. And there's another there's another genre that I actually want to bring up, too, that I think is creeping up in popularity more in games than it is in movies. But I would dare say also it's it's a genre of horror in itself. And I don't know what necessarily to call it aside from the jump scare genre, because it's really more built to just give you that that initial surge of adrenaline uh, to get you afraid. And, you know, the biggest culprits, obviously, are Five Nights at Freddy's and all of the variations that have come out from that Joy of Creation. 
I've seen like Disney, SpongeBob, Sonic, all variations of of the same genre, but it's all meant to just rouse up a jump scare. That's not to say that this is the only one that does it. A lot of game horror actually derives from jump scare material. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because there are people that this is a niche genre for. They love the jump scares rather than the big elaborate stories that actually might make sense. Um, and I would actually dare say one of my favorite uh, subgenres of, of that where it's legitimate horror for me. This is going to sound weird, but when you actually look at it and not not from our perspective, not from the critics perspective, but look at it like a brand new pair of eyes on it. The Resident Evil series, when it began, because here's the thing, most average people who are playing it, they don't have science degrees. They think this is entirely possible. And when you have the techno babble in the notes to be able to back that up, well, they don't know it's techno babble. So this is actually seeming to be like this uh, aberration of life, uh, uh, basically to create this bio, uh, this bio weapon that can make us all rise from the dead. Yeah, I think. And, to, and then with gaming, you have definitely two schools of thought. With Capcom, they kind of embraced more the B-movie horror routes because that was their inspiration, was the work of George A. Romero. And then you have, in, the, uh, in another camp, you then have stuff like Silent Hill, at least the earlier games that are all very heavily psychological, ex- Silent Hill 2 especially, because Silent Hill 2 is very much about the exploration of the mental state of James Sunderland because that is the goal of that game. And then, again, to kind of use the original as an example, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, trapped in a spooky town. But what is the key thing that is keeping Harry Mason going? He is trying to find his daughter. That's a fear that, I mean, you especially can relate because you're a parent, but that's an, a fear that anyone can relate to. Because And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like the original version of Poltergeist, because it's that same basic exploration of exploring what a parent is willing to do to save their child and that's one thing that the original got right that the remake, again, bungled. Yeah, but at that point, you know, it's another thing that we can get into with horror is that it doesn't just explain how dark the human soul can go, but also what the the human soul is willing to endure to protect those that they love. That's another awesome element because, you, yeah, you I haven't played Silent Hill, but I know the pivotal characters that a lot of people love, like Harry Mason, and uh, I, I don't remember the protagonist of Two's name off the top yeah, of my James head. James Sunderland. James Sunderland. So at that point, um, these are relatable guys where they go put themselves through literal hell. And at that point, you have those moments like go into the countryside and only have a picnic. And all of a sudden we end up in hell. And, And that at that point, they're relatable to you and you want to see them get out. You want to see them uh, survive in that aspect. So like for me, that's not necessarily Harry Mason because I haven't played these things. But for me, it was Chris Redfield. It was Jill Valentine. It was Leon Kennedy because I wanted to see them survive the horror that became the world that was Resident Evil. Um, And this actually kind of bleeds into the question because we've been talking about film and we've been talking about games. And and here's the thing. Horror can go into TV, obviously, because we have things like Walking Dead. Um, you can have comics. I mean, horror is probably one of the biggest genres of comics. Yep. I mean, uh, I even, that's why I put down the money to buy the collected horror comics from Dark Horse because Dark Horse does a really good job with their horror comics and not just Hellboy, but like their one shots are really good. Well, and and actually the example I was going to bring up to you is like, you played the Silent Hill games. I've seen the Silent Hill comics. Those are pretty warped um, and already scary enough for me just going through but and and here's the the thing that i find absolutely hilarious 
that's the worst of the Silent Hill series, according to the fans. The best are the games. Uh, so it's like, oh, well, the the worst of the worst scare me. So I probably ought to go. I ought to not go to the best of the best. But we've been going into to film and games. But to us, like the question is, what what actual medium tells horror best? Um, and and that's a harder question to answer because again, atmosphere is king for this. So which one sets the atmosphere perfectly for you? And here's the thing for the viewer, that could be completely different. So don't immediately assume that we're wrong in our assessment. But go go ahead, Romney. What 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 medium actually fulfills this genre more for you? That's a really hard question to ask because again, it ultimately comes down to the story that is being told and how it is being told. Cuz I mean, I do like listening to audiobooks. Some like my one of my favorite audiobooks is a dramatized version of Dracula, and again, it really comes down to what type of what we're exploring, what the story is actually about. And so, if a film can do things one way visually, that a book may do in a completely different direction. I mean, a good example with Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Most film versions just focus on the perspective of Doctor Jekyll conducting the experiment and all the madness that follows. But people may not realize the original novella isn't actually from Dr. Jekyll's perspective. It's from the perspective of his lawyer, Gabriel Utterson, who suddenly notices, hey, there's this weird Mr. Hyde guy suddenly running around. Oh, there's this will that my client gave me that says that he's going to leave everything to this mysterious stranger. I wonder if he's being coerced. I should probably talk to him. And in doing so, out of that concern for his client, he then uncovers the mystery of... Dr. Jekyll's plan to try to divest that evil part of himself and how he ultimately failed. Well, and, and isn't it, you're going to have to correct me on this because it's been a while since I've read the Stoker novel, but um, isn't the first, like the prologue or the first couple of chapters with, um, is it Renfield who goes there first? Uh, actually. The one that becomes the servant. Oh, uh, that's the thing. With the original story, you don't really get a prologue with Renfield. It immediately starts with Jonathan Harker making his okay. way to Castle Dracula. It's implied that Renfield went crazy and was the initial solicitor that was being sent, but because he went crazy, Harker is the substitute, and that's kind of the idea there, is that there isn't really a prologue, it immediately starts with Jonathan Harker, it's literally, I even remember the opening, it was like, left Fistritz, and then it goes into him traveling slowly until he makes his way to the Borgo Pass, changes carriages, and then is taken to the castle. And the other thing with Dracula is a good example because it's kind of the precursor to what we see with found footage films where most other horror stories are like, okay, it's like a story where it's here. It's like, oh no, this is a collection of journal entries, newspaper clippings, and other information about this really weird stuff that happened that we want to make a record of. And it kind of adds that sense of authenticity to it of, oh, here's this, like, here are these journal entries. Here are these letters that these people sent. Here's all this information about this really weird thing that happened that we want to make a clear record of. Yeah, so at that point, like, what, what I was trying to portray there is, like, with, with books, you you tell from more of a perspective of a particular character. And in some kind, in some cases, that character can change in the novel. So you have Harker. Um, I believe that there's there's stuff with uh, one, of, one of his victims during that in Dracula, where you have a, a chapter told from their perspective. Yep, Lucy. Then you have, then you, uh, yeah, Lucy. Then you have, um, like in the Frankenstein novel, most of that stuff is told from from Frankenstein basically telling the story, but then you also have moments where the monster takes over 
And he's saying, you know, this is what happened after this, and this is why I want to to achieve my goals. Yeah, and the framing device um, of the whole novel is basically this crew, this real-life crew that was exploring the Arctic that just happened to find Frankenstein in the middle of the Arctic, and they're and it's literally, hey, we just found this dude, like, on the ice. We have no idea what the hell he's doing here. And so they brought him into the ship to warm him up, and basically I was like, hey, dude, why are you in the Arctic? Like, what brought you here? Thus leading him to him explaining the creation of the monster and all of that tragedy that it, that had followed. Exactly. So, so like from a book, you can tell from that particular perspective. Comics do the exact same thing, where they have a particular character in narration. Films kind of tend to go the angle of like most of the time disembodied camera, where it's not necessarily you're you're seeing things from a character's perspective, unless forced. But most of the time, it's like you're the one that's peering into the darkness to see whether or not there's something that's going to jump out, and. And games, I would actually dare say, kind of do a weird fusion because it is from a character's perspective, but it uses film-esque elements to be able to to jump scare and shock you. So it is, it's one of those things where I, I would just say, like, for every single person, it's a matter of what scares you more. Um, this Does this perspective scare you more than another? Uh, for me in particular, a lot of stuff that I found to be especially scary has been games. Um, a lot of the horror elements, like, because here's the thing, a book you could put away, but man, games will force you through that segment. And if you die, you have to go through it again. So if that thing is still scary to you, you have to endure it. Yep. And, and there's another facet to consider as well with <laughs> any medium is also the concept of the unreliable narrator. So it's a case of, yeah. okay, you have the main character taking us through this thing. But then as you look through the story, it's a case of, okay, can we even trust what this character is sp- is explaining? Is this actually happening to them, or have they simply gone insane? A good example of this, uh, from the early days of film, is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where we're told this elaborate story about this evil mad scientist, about this deadly sleepwalker, and then at the very end of the film, and spoiler warning if you care about the story of a centuries-old film, but it's revealed that, oh, it's all a twist because the person telling the story is a patient in a mental asylum, and the evil doctor is the doctor that is treating him, trying to cure him of his psychosis. It was the first yeah. time a twist ending had been done in film, but there, it's another thing that can be done, no matter the medium, is, okay, can you even trust the perspective that you're being shown? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the, the first thing that came up, came to my mind when you actually did that description was not necessarily that the doctor was evil, well, the doctor was evil, but um, Diablo, the, the second I got brought into the Diablo series, one of the greatest uh, concepts of that series is the reveal at the end of Diablo 2 that all of this is being told from the perspective of a crazed madman who's gone through absolute hell, literally. He's gone through absolute hell, and he's telling his story to whom he he is he presumes is his greatest ally, an angel. And then at the very end, it's actually revealed that he is actually one of the highest lords of hell, and he has disguised himself so that he can learn all the information that this guy experienced and therefore can find what he needs to then ascend because the main threat is presumably dead. So at that point, it's it's one of those things where that reveal can also be done in this perspective of, yeah, he is evil, and the guy who was crazy, he was crazy because he did go through hell, but he still was a good guy. Um, so I, I I actually love reveals like that because they are they can easily make a story unforgettable in a lot of people's eyes because when you literally have that moment happen in some of these books cases the last page you're gonna be thinking about it for a long time and in some cases you never get an answer um, and 
I would actually dare um, uh, somebody actually brought this up to my attention is like, and to those who get an answer, wusses. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's halfway true because the way the the thing that sells a lot of these stories is you never know. Uh, you are always left to presume. <clears throat> but there you go. That those are some of the favorite uh mediums that we actually can take into. The next question that I want to get into is your favorite creator of horror. And that's a harder thing to go into because I'm opening these up to authors, to uh, film directors, TV directors, game directors. Um, and actually, in my case, with with mine, I would dare say that some of the, the weirdest stuff that I've read and affected me on a primal level was actually in the bookend. And it would be... I haven't even read every single thing from this guy, but Lovecraft is creepy to read. Uh, Poe, your first time running through any of his short stories is very hard to do. But I will also give the... Um, oh, I can't remember the uh, the Jekyll and Hyde author. Is it Robert Louis Stevenson that did it? He can also like weave a tale that makes you just unhinge and just makes skin crawl on, on the way that he does things. These are just a few examples because anybody who can pull this off, I almost want to hand them a medal because there are so many horror. You could probably attest to this. There's so many horror directors out there that just can't like I will give I will give props to Rob Zombie. I think that he tries very, very hard to do it. And he's a very dedicated fan, but he's actually one of those hit or miss guys when it comes to horror. And so at that point, it's like I feel really bad because you can tell this is his absolute favorite genre but he just can't sell it. Yeah, for me, there aren't a lot of creators that I know by name, but there are two that I do. I mean, first, to kind of, the Rob Zombie kind of planted it in my head, John Carpenter definitely is one. Oh, jeez, I didn't even mention Carpenter, yeah. Yeah, because not just with Halloween, but also The Thing. He's done, he knows how to keep, how to build suspense and how to really draw you in. Even in his action films, he knows how to really, really get you out on the edge of your seat. And then in terms of other creators, Two that also come to mind, you have Junji Ito, the mangaka behind Uzumaki. He's really good at drawing just very, very unsettling images. And even if the story themselves itself may not make a whole lot of sense, it's still the kind of imagery that just, it makes you shudder because you're just like, ugh. Because you know it's only a drawing, but it's like, but he renders, he renders it in such a way that it's just, it's a visceral feeling of just, of just terror of, oh, the human, the body is capable of doing this or that. And uh, so you'll you'll have to correct something really quick for me because I've never understood this um, from my perspective. I've always looked at it, and since it said it was called Uzumaki, this thing is tied to Naruto. But the but and depending on who I've talked to, the yeah it might be because spirals. But then at that point, others say no. It absolutely. Could you correct this for me, please? It is not tied to Naruto. Okay, at all. thank you. It's. That is just a coincidence because, again, Naruto, it's his last name. It's, it's tied to a spiral. He literally got the name from a type of ramen. That's the That was just the whole point. But Uzumaki by Junji Ito does not tie into Naruto in any way, shape, or I've form. Because I've seen stuff from Uzumaki. Like, in particular, the, the one that gets floated around the internet a lot of the one guy whose eye is slowly sinking into a spiral kind of thing. I've seen that. That's, that's effed up right there. Yep. And then another creator that comes to mind that granted the story isn't the story he does isn't necessarily horror, but it has a lot of horror elements. And that would be Kentaro Miura, the creator of Berserk. 
because Berserk is a good blend of horror and fantasy because, well, Guts, it, it's very much a lot of people think, oh yeah, it's like high fantasy, but this isn't like fantasy of, oh, I'm the hero. Guts is someone who has literally been beaten, stabbed, put through both literal and abstract versions of hell, and he just keeps fighting, not because he's some deep, like deep down, he's some noble person trying to make the world a better place, at least not in the sense of that's not his motivation. I mean, the first motivation is that he is going after Femto. He's on a journey of revenge. That is, is, is his initial motivation. And because of all he's gone through, he's basically seen absolute hell and has come through it. And the way Miura is able to render all of these demons, all of this really messed up, and even the gore, is again, that same visceral feeling of, ooh, it really feels like, okay, this was a person. And this person is being literally split in half by a giant hunk of metal that no human should be able to carry, but Guts is somehow able to carry it. Yeah, I didn't even think about it that way, because I always look at Berserk as more of an action thing, mainly because of a guy wielding huge sword. But yeah, no, there are a lot of horror elements in there. It's one of those things where like I've seen the series, but I don't think the horror aspect ever truly sank in until I played a Berserk game on Dreamcast. And that was some mind effery right there. Because uh, cause you, just as you explained, like you went through a hellish domain and, and you had to survive. So yeah, th- that's definitely another one of those examples that works completely. Yep. And then to kind of go on. And so those are the creators that I can name off the top of my head of ones that are really good at eliciting fear. Granted, there are a lot of other stories that have horror elements. I mean, the early parts of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure had those elements. Even early Yu-Gi-Oh, the manga, the parts that didn't get adapted into the anime, it started out as a horror series. And so it actually gets into some pretty terrifying... I mean, one of the most terrifying chapters of those early Yu-Gi-Oh comics is literally a segment revolving around everyone getting the little virtual pets. And it's like, oh, one virtual pet starts trying to eat all these other virtual pets to become stronger. And it is terrifying. Like, absolutely terrifying the way it's drawn. And yeah, you can tell that it started out as a horror manga, because that was kind of Takahashi's initial point. And then it became about card games, but that's, again, neither here nor there. But that's the thing. There's a lot of bleed over with the genre. The the other part, too, is that um, eventually, like, we, we look at the Yami character as, like, an ally. Like, at the end of it, because that's kind of where we get into the card game portion. But in that first season, he is not to be trusted. In fact, we see him do some 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 effed up... Uh, I'm trying very hard not to curse, but, like, he's doing some effed up stuff. Um, in particular, the one that I've seen most recently is um, the story where a guy starts stalking Taya or I can't, I, I can't remember what her actual name Anzu. is in chat ja- on Um, and he actually does succeed. Like he gets those leery things that he, he's been wanting. And all of a sudden here comes Yami and he's just as evil as Pegasus at this point. Cause he's basically saying, let's play a game. And if you lose, you lose for keeps kind of thing. And even in that early, um, duelist kingdom arc, he is still considered an enemy. Um, it, just because of that story, like he's willing to go to extremes that Yugi isn't willing to go to and therefore is still considered the bad guy. It isn't until later arcs that he's the good Pharaoh that we all think him to be. And I think at that point, yeah, the, the mangaka kind of changed his overall impression of, of what he was going to do. Yeah. And so like those three creators, Carpenter, like Junji Ito and 
Kentaro Miura are kind of like some of my favorites off the top of my head, but then you also have people like Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy, who also is able to to create his own unique spin. There's just so many pieces of media that I could talk about. And as for like horror filmmakers, I definitely have to give mention to James Wan, who director of Saw, director of The Conjuring, because he gets aspects of horror that a lot of the other filmmakers just don't seem to get. And that's the case, because I mean, with Saw, it's not just, oh, it's these elaborate traps that eviscerate someone. Deep down, it's like, okay, what is the purpose of the Jigsaw Killer? Okay, he targets people that are suicidal and basically puts them to the test to say, okay, if you want to die, do nothing. But if you want to survive, here's what you have to do to survive. And it's to kind of show, okay, how much do you actually want to live? Exactly. Um, another one that uh, just barely came to my mind that I, I think at least deserves some level of, of consideration, even though more of the time when he writes horror, he also writes humor into it. Joss Whedon can set a scene really, really well, especially if you if you guys haven't seen like certain episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Angel. In particular, I can't remember the actual name. Of, I think it's called Hush, but it's a it's an episode completely told through uh, through silent theater. But the enemy it throughout it is just these these ghostly doctors that are like conferring with each other and they're just acting like they're having the most jovial conversation while they jovially cut your heart out kind of thing. So it's definitely one of those things where I love Joss Whedon because he can he could tell a really great joke, but he can also set a scene of horror that just makes your blood curdle. It really does. And I mean, so another good I think example. that's another acknowledgement. Well, yeah, and, and I don't know the creator, but another good example of a horror terrifying episode and something that's not normally terrifying, I mean, everybody will always mention Blink from Doctor Who and just how terrifying that episode is because it's presented in an interesting context where most Doctor Who episodes are like, oh, it's an adventure with the Doctor, whereas here we're given a main character who suddenly finds this mysterious video on a DVD of the Doctor talking, and then it just leads to this really elaborate mystery that has a very terrifying payoff. Like, the character, the main character still survives, but it's still kind of a very terrifying thing, especially during that last sequence where it shows all the statues and it, you have the audio of the, of the Doctor saying, don't blink, and you see all of these real statues that look like people that you're now suddenly terrified of because of what you just saw. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there, there are occasional moments, even in TV, where, where horror is told brilliantly on the camera. Um, and so we're actually running out of time, but this is the next and final question that I want to get into is, um, as much as we love the horror genre, horror, I would actually dare say is one of the genres in film right now that is getting the most criticism. And it's mainly because of by internet definition that horror has lost its direction. It's lost what has been important in favor of supporting, um, value that they th that they think is marketable so in, in a lot of these cases slashers are dominant because people love these kinds of uh these saw-esque kind of of stories to tell we also have lots of oversaturation in zombies especially in games um where it seems like the only horror element you can ever work with is either zombies or vampires and so the next question that we have is basically where do we feel the the status of the horror genre is and does it need to be fixed? If so, how? Um, so at that point, I, th I think it's best to leave it to the monster, the master of Monster Clash at this point. Well, here's kind of the underlying problem that I'm seeing with horror films in today's market. And I mean, because we've seen it where people are basically trying to capitalize on different trends. I mean, back a few years ago, 
we saw how everyone and their mother was putting out a found footage horror film because they were cheap to make and you could basically play around with different things, but they all did the same thing. They were basically two hours of jump scares. And that's the other issue. And a friend, uh, my brother actually brought this term to my attention where you have films that are basically, and it's a vulgar example, but there's no other way to put it, but they're blowing their scare load too early. They're really in such a rush to get to the very scary, very eerie looking stuff that they don't take the time to actually build up that sense of mystery and doom. I mean, most well, they don't recent... they don't properly uh, push it out so that it spans the entire length. Mm-hmm. I mean, a good example, and as I was looking at it, is the Amityville Horror. When you look at how the original presents its scares as opposed to the remake. The remake rushes straight into the CGI right out of the gates like, okay, there's this creepy ghost girl that the youngest daughter's talking to. Oh, there's the arms that are keeping her from speaking. There's all this stuff that they're already showing you. Whereas the Amityville horror is very much, oh, here's this weird stuff that's happening. Oh, here's another weird thing that's happening. Oh, here's another weird thing that's happening. And even by the end of the original, you don't have some weird grand exposition of, oh, it was this demon, Bazoozabub, causing the problems. Like, no, it's like, hey, this this weird stuff is happening. Let's get the hell out of here. And so, yeah, exactly. And that's the other problem is that people are afraid to take their time because they think today's audiences have really short attention spans. I mean, one of the few decent horror films that I would say is actually watchable would be Lights Out. Because Lights Out, it plants the seeds of the idea. It starts with a simple mystery of, oh, why is this kid who's the main character afraid to go to sleep at night? Why is he afraid to be in the dark? And then you use that mystery to carry you through the story. And instead of trying to establish some weird cosmology or trying to set up for a sequel, it's just a case of, okay, here's this spooky thing, and then the story ends. Because that's what you do is that you ended on a satisfying, not so much a satisfying conclusion, but you know not to overstay your welcome, and that's what Lights Out does fairly well. And I know that there's a few others that do the same thing, like The Conjuring was fairly good, but is a bit bloated, and then you had the unnecessary prequel slash side series Annabelle, which I still have no idea what those films are made, but it ultimately comes down to people want to come go straight to the ghost, go straight to the gore, go straight to the zombies. They don't actually think about what it is you're trying to explore with your story. They just want to get to the fun stuff. It's like the equivalent of fast-forwarding through... I mean, to use an example, it's like fast-forwarding through The Karate Kid to get past all the philosophical stuff just so you can skip to the final fight at the end. What What's the yeah, point? So yeah, so you can skip to the crane kick, yeah. Yeah, and then... Because then at that point, you haven't seen the journey. Yeah, you haven't seen the journey, and it's very much, why, why bother? Why do you even bother? And same case with horror film it's the same case of oh it's like fast forwarding through all of the exposition with dracula just so you can get to the part where he's basically turning mina into a vampire and it's a case of well why you're you're missing everything else and that is the fundamental problem is that people most notably executives are afraid of their audience getting bored and so they want to rush things and basically have it so that way you're doing everything possible to keep their attention and that is why jump scares have become so predictable now not only that, but I would actually dare say that a lot of horror is now written in the context of being an action film. Um, you know, like one of the one of the things that I will at least compliment Freddy's that a lot of people won't is that's classic horror, a feeling of helplessness and basically waiting for the nastiness to come and attack you kind of thing. That's that's the way horror I've always felt should be portrayed, because then at that point it shows um especially when you find a way to overcome it, it's more powerful that way. But then we have uh, like the Tom Cruise reinterpretation of the mummy, 
or Dracula and uh, what was it? Dracula Untold. Yeah. Where, where it's more told from the, the concept of we have to be a Lord of the Rings knockoff. We have to be an action movie so that you get not only the scare, the jump scare moments and they psychologically make sense of their, their moments, but then you can also protect yourself during that process. So like you can also go down the predictable, okay, there's the jump scare, but then here comes the shotgun to blow them up in the face. Yeah. Kind and, of thing. and another example of a film that tried to do things right, but was hindered because of a lot of other missteps would be Crimson Peak. Because Crimson Peak had the makings of a good horror film, but again, it made the same mistake of trying to plant ideas and and basically trying to create these explanations. Oh, well, here's this early foreshadowing that's going to pay off later, even though it's done way too early, and so it kind of spoils the surprise. And then the other problem is that the more engaging moments of Crimson Peak are the moments where the main character is looking into the mystery of the house, looking into the mystery of her now new husband, and trying to figure out what is going on, but then they decide to over-embellish it with a bunch of CGI showing the ghosts, when those moments would have been a lot more effective if the CGI wasn't there at all, if they just suddenly had, oh, the door suddenly closed on its own, having all those jumper, like, jitterier moments. I mean, it's kind of, the be- Jim Sterling kind of puts it best where it's the ugliness, because everybody wants to do the CGI, they want it to look polished, they want it to look pretty, not realizing it's the ugliness, it's the unnaturalness of of it that helps sell the terror. A good example is the original Ringu, which the ring is based on, where, no, it's not going to use some elaborate CGI thing. It is literally just showing some unnatural, messed up, creepy looking stuff, but it does it briefly. It doesn't over embellish it by having Samara crawl out of the TV. It's just you have the main guy who watched the tape, and then suddenly Sadako is in the living room after coming out of the tape. That's it. It's very much one of those things where people want to show off their effects, they want to show off the makeup, they want to basically show off all the cool-looking stuff, but they don't take the time to actually build it up. They don't take the time to think, okay, what is it that we're trying to actually do here? Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the perfect example, I don't know what film did this, but because I've only seen the snippet, but I want to say it was probably one of the Silent Hill films that did this particular imagery, and I think it's it's encapsulating everything that you're saying where they do have like, this is either a Japanese film or this is one of the silent Hill films where they actually have the, the it's a little girl and she's basically kind of got this orb of energy around her and she's in this nice and comfortable and white room, but the aura and presence around her is destabilizing it and actually making it look the way it should look in horror. It looks, uh, ugly and battered and time uh like lost to time kind of thing and the bubble kind of slowly gets bigger and you start to see this really comfortable looking white room just start to unravel and it's unsettling when it goes through and again i really wish i knew which way it goes but that's basically what people try to do in that aspect where it's like that temporary element but it has to be a more permanent thing um because that's what helps sell the scene and here's the thing, that's a powerful scene to me, but it would have been much more powerful if they were literally in, well, a, a house that was like 20 years lost to time kind of thing. It, it would have sold a lot better because then you would have basically felt like, oh no, you are in this creature's domain. This is where this creature has thrived for this many years. Um, the other thing too, that, and, I, and, and I also hope that they they eventually fix these things because we, we already do have films that I'm already worried are going to basically define horror for years to come. I mean, we already have the Freddy's movie. It's coming. Um, we don't know what necessarily is going to happen there, but we have it. 
Uh, I've already heard that there's talk of a of another Silent Hill film that they're they're looking to do. We already have the rebooted live action Resident Evil films. So I have a feeling that unfortunately, like action is just going to dominate horror in the next couple of years. And that's a sad thought because while action can help lend awesomeness to that horror, you do need to actually set the scene and you do actually have to have that, that concept of hopelessness mm-hmm. for it to be truly sold. And I mean, kind of it both, what both helps and hurts the genre is the fact that it's a gateway genre for a lot of filmmakers. Horror movies are how a lot of new talent gets into the industry. I mean, that's how Wes Craven got in. That's how James Wan got in. That's how, yeah, Peter Jackson. That's how he got in was through horror films. The Sam Raimi, another example. That's how he got in was through horror. And it was a gateway, it's a gateway genre for a lot of filmmakers. And so that's kind of both, it's both a blessing and a curse. Because the idea is that if a filmmaker knows how to make something that's terrifying and engaging, then okay, they actually know what they're doing. But at the same time, you then have like three dozen others who think they're being edgy, think they're being clever, think they're being scary, but aren't really. I mean, a good example of this is Your Next, which people... Now, when I saw it, this was after having seen a lot of the advertisements that tried portraying it as a serious horror film. Yet, a lot of the other people that came out of it were saying, oh, it's really good satire, but honestly, Your Next is a mess. It thinks it's being clever, it thinks it's satirizing all these other horror elements, but it's not doing it very well because it's tonally confused. It doesn't know what it wants yeah. to be. I would actually dare say the only film that I've seen trailers of, because I didn't see this thing in the theaters. I usually, I wait so that I could sleep. I wait till I can actually see it in the middle of the day or something like that. But the, the one trailer that has stuck with me, and it came out around the same time as Beauty and the Beast, so I always think about it. Um, you might have mentioned it. Uh, it's the psychological thriller that came out where... Uh, Oh, I don't I don't even know the premise of the story, but black guy goes to like a, an all white neighborhood and he slowly just starts to devolve mentally. Yeah, that's get out. It was directed by get Jordan out. Peele, which that threw yeah. a lot of people for a loop because Jordan, most people know Jordan yeah. Peele from Key and Peele. But that's that's an example of using horror to explore an actual topic, which in the case of get out, it's exploring the very ten, tense race relations in the United States. But not only just just the imagery that was placed in there, it was it's like a mind effery just in trailer alone. So already that was like that's like the only one that I could think of this year that has been that unsettling for me. Most films, I literally look at them and go, oh, look, it's your token schlock film in between seasons that uh, is not going to be anywhere near as successful than it as it probably should be. Um, uh, another perfect example of that was. Um, Oh, there there was one actually recently that's more like an exorcist film that happened. I think it's it's coming out either in a couple of weeks or it came out a couple of weeks ago. And it just looks like, oh, look, an action-y exorcism or an action-y, action-y exorcist. And it's so dumb that we have those those aspects. And then we also have uh, cool aspects like the mummy turning into more action films yeah. than they are actual legitimate horror. Or specifically trying to basically be superhero films because that was the problem yeah. with Amongst others, that was kind of the biggest problem was that they were trying to portray these monsters as the equivalent of superheroes, which I can see how you can do that properly. I mean, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the comics, gets pretty dang close. But again, it's that same... I mean, again, Hellboy is probably the best example of that, of, okay, you have things that would be treated as monsters coming together to fight the actual monsters. And there you go. You have the Bureau of Paranormal Research. 
but it, it definitely worries me when when this is kind of the focus of where we're going. And I'm already hearing talk of, and I, I don't know if you've seen these talks either, but um, Lovecraft movies have been brought up numerous, or Lovecraft books have been brought up numerous times for screen for movie treatments, and they failed every single time. But now I'm hearing talk of like one or two actually getting that treatment, like, uh, uh-uh. uh. Uh-uh. I don't I don't think you're going to be able to encapsulate anything that Lovecraft was trying to do because you're going to CGI the crap out of it and it's going to look silly by the end of it. Well, and that's the thing. There there could be a way to do the C- the to basically do those yes, elements there is. right. And that kind of raises the it goes into the problem. People want the CGI to look pretty. They want it to look realistic. I and mean, if you can't go that way. I mean, if I were to do, if I were in the director's chair of doing a Lovecraft film, I would intend I wouldn't go like uncanny valley but maybe instead of having the things that the human mind cannot comprehend rather than have it be oh it's like a CGI monster I'm just like have it 2D animated have it look like it's a drawing but and still have it that give it that feel of it's kind of a shape but not really because it is literally something the human mind can't comprehend because that is the essence of Lovecraft stories is that these are people encountering things that their brain literally cannot comprehend like it is not it's not even like oh they're too dumb it's like no it's literally beyond their ability of comprehension and that is what drives them insane is because the brain can't handle it yeah and that sounds to me a lot more scary than just putting out a shiny pristine cg cthulian horror on screen because you know unfortunately the the premise of cg in a lot of cases is to to pretty it up so that it looks awesome on the screen but in those cases you really need to go the opposite you really need to ugly them up as possible uh, as much as possible. But I, I like what what Romney's come up as an idea. Yeah, because I mean, a good example but, of a story that doesn't write that could be horror, but technically isn't the never ending story, because when they're describing the nothing, you're not seeing and the movies do a good job. of it. It's like you're not literally seeing anything that represents the nothing because it's nothing you can. And the brain cannot comprehend the concept of not existing, of nothing being there, because, again, it's unperceivable. The novel did a really good job of it, and the film, the first film, did a really good job of encapsulating that concept of, oh, that it's being consumed by the nothing, as in, oh, as in, it's literally nothing, as in, you literally can't see it because it doesn't exist, yet it does exist. It's like a zen riddle. That's why in a lot of cases we have really good book interpretations of something like nothing, where it's basically this giant, void, cavernous maw that constantly just eats all existence kind of thing, because that's that's the best way you can ever possibly paint nothing into somebody's mind's eye. So yeah, I completely agree on this one, but unfortunately we have run out of time for this month. So thank you once again, so much Romney for stepping in for this horror, for this talk overall of the horror genre, not just what we love about it, but also where we hope it goes in the future, (coughs) which is more along the lines of off the track that we think it's going, but thank you so much for, for showing up on this one, Romney. If people want to actually reach out to you and uh, talk to you about the the thoughts that you have on horror, as well as be able to check out Monster Clash, especially this month's or uh, this year's Monster Clash. How do they do that? Well, you can always find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash studio ghost Utah. You can also find me on the second home vidme at vid.me slash studio ghost. I am also on Facebook at Romney at facebook.com slash Romney's reviews, no apostrophe. And I am also at Romney reviews on Twitter. And so if you want to actually tweet me questions or ask me questions about my videos and about my content and actually get them to me and not bombarding poor Adam with all of those questions. <laughs> those are where you can find me. I love it. I love it. In the aspect of it was like, well, he's on the panel. 
So if we just reach out to the host, then he'll just talk to the panelist. Well, you're not wrong on that matter, but yeah, it just means you fill up my inbox. And then at that point, I was like, okay, well, I got to keep this for Romney. I got to keep this one for Alex. And that gets complicated. Yes. And so, yes, by all means, people, you can tweet at me on Twitter. I'm not, I, I don't fight. Not even if you ask me to, because I'm not into that sort of thing. No, 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 not at all. Unless he's a vampire. And then he's probably into that sort of thing. Well, even then, I'd, I'd probably be more like a loop guru where I use my fingers instead of my teeth. Much more efficient. Ooh, that's the creepy ones. All right. So if people want to also reach out to me and, and talk to me about the various opinions I've had and the examples I brought up, you can do so on Twitter at Drac2326. And especially if you want to follow the podcast, you can, first of all, follow us on iTunes. Uh, all nine episodes at this point should be up, including our last episode on Star Trek. <clears throat> we should have this up very soon, hopefully by Halloween, but I'm not sure. Uh, it just depends on how things work out. And you can also follow the Podomatic page, which is ybgeek.podomatic.com. And we are also on Twitter at ybgeek, so you can put the questions there as well as suggestions for episodes of the podcast you guys would like to see. Uh, there is a Facebook, but it's coming soon because I'm still trying to get the, the name proper for it. And then at that point, I'll give it to you guys outright. But that's going to go ahead and do it for us. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you, Romney, for stepping in on the panel. And of course, we will see you guys next time for the next Why We Geek.